0: We're starting this semester with two pieces by Aimé Césaire, his 1945 essay, Poetry and Knowledge, and his 1956 essay, uh, Culture and Colonization. The two pieces are 11 years apart and in some ways uh, reflect a lot of growth on the part of, of Césaire in terms of his thinking, in terms of his theorization of Caribbean reality, and in terms of his own intellectual sensibilities. I want to say a few things about that here, but it's also something that will become clearer as we go on across the semester. The 1945 essay Poetry and Knowledge was published in Tropique, which was a journal that he helped co-found and which really set a foundation the Caribbean critical theory tradition. There are a number of pieces from Tropique that we'll be talking about across the semester especially these early moments uh, in reading M. A. Césaire, but also Suzanne Césaire and René Menil. The uh, Culture and Colonization essay is from 1956, which Césaire presented at the Paris Congress of uh, Black Writers and Artists. That essay uh, is definitely the more mature and I think the more metaphysical um, and big, really big vision version of Césaire, whereas poetry and knowledge is a sort of manifesto written in a surrealist, kind of quasi-surrealist style evoking the future of poetry, the future of the body and of the senses and their ability or capacity to articulate Caribbean reality. So across these two essays... You know, I think we see two different Césaires, but in a very positive way. I I like seeing two different Césaires. He, you know, in 1945 is in his, uh, I think he's 32 years old, and you see the exuberance of the beginning of this movement. Whereas in 1956, uh, Césaire has been more networked into Black Atlantic theory, right? Thinking about Africa, thinking about the Americas, and the relation between them. And so those two different Césaires, I think, are worth considering each on their own, but also in relation to each other. What I like about poetry and knowledge, or what I think is so interesting about it, is it shows Cezaire taking the, uh, the French poetry and French poetry innovations, not the surrealist innovations quite yet, but uh, the mid to late 19th century, and uh, sees uh, French poets really wrestling with this idea of how to embellish poetry, how to liberate it from its more contemplative or abstract concerns and make it visceral, make it connected to the vitality and um, urgency of life. So when he talks about Baudelaire and Rimbaud, he's really in, in so many ways talking about You know, how how did poetry represent for those poets and for French poetry generally in the the late 19th century? How did poetry represent this desire and this need to connect word and life? And when we think about the urge and the urgency to connect word and life, I think, you know, I mean, there's obviously the trajectory of European modernity and the increasing alienation of self from world. And that's reflected in all kinds of critical theory and literature and and other arts. But when you take that motif of trying to find a way of more intimately connecting word and, and life or word and landscape, word and world... It, uh, and you, you travel that over to the Caribbean, you can see how this urgency is not simply connected to a sort of broad existential concern with, you know, what, what is the meaning of life sort of thing, but also how, or more importantly, how that relationship of word and life is at the heart of liberation from colonialism. Not political or economic liberation, right? Those things would come with independence movements and with sort of post-colonial theory, uh, theorization of, of economy, uh, both, um, in terms of the practice of, you know, industry and so forth in a in a post colonial society, but also economy in terms of how do how do you set up human relations as such in exchanges, you know, at the levels of education, of national language, of representational government, and so forth. But more intimate and more existential is this question of. You know, what does it mean to inherit 400 years of of enslavement and colonial domination to to encounter that and to live in its wake? And then ask yourself, you know, how does our language or does our language connect to the world as we live it? And I say the world as we live it rather than the world as we know it, because that's exactly what's at stake in poetry and knowledge. If we think about the word and its relation to the world as we know it, we can talk about the calibration of our critical vocabulary or evocative uh, descriptions or even the political accounting for, say, ideological forms of of oppression and the like uh, that get reproduced at multiple levels of society, whether it's language and education uh, or disciplinary functions of the police and the military and so forth. When we think about, about uh, how we know the world, we do see the world at some remove. And that's important because that's what political theory does, right? It diagnoses institutions and their relationship to us. And in thinking about institutions and their relationship to us, we do think about political liberation. And this is absolutely crucial for any kind of post-colonial theory, any kind of desire to move theoretical work, uh, sorry, uh, not uh, to move political work from conditions of oppression to conditions of liberation, But that remove, if that is also the nature of poetry, that is, if poetry and poetic writing is always at some remove from the world. One of Cesare's, I think, key claims there is that we end up, uh, one ends up reproducing colonial models or European models of what poetry ought to be doing. And he's saying in in the Poetry and uh, Knowledge essay that essentially the... um, essentially the the, the the French poets had already pushed against this. So, you know, what would it mean even that as a kind of retrograde poetry to set at some remove? There's a racial question, which I'll get into in a moment. But in the end, it's like, you know, not even the French poets want this. But I think more urgent for Césaire is just reckoning with the effects of centuries of colonial subjugation and domination, which has alienated bodies and language from the world in which the colonized live. So poetry is not simply an expressive medium on this account, but is an expressive medium that is in the service of rehabilitating the capacity of colonized bodies to connect to the world and to connect to the way they talk about the world. To give a language to the kind of viscerality of their own experience, which is not experience at some distance, but is experience in the landscape, in the world, in the West Indies, right? That has air, that has uh, uh, seaside, that has mountains, that has trees, that has vegetation, that has fruit, that has sound, that has um, color and 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 scent that is distinctive to the place. And so you can't sort of import this model of of European poetry as a sort of contemplative medium or contemplative approach and actually attune the colonized to the worlds in which they live. That kind of poetry at remove, where poetry would become a little bit like, if not exclusively, like political commentary is problematic for cesare because it doesn't actually address one of the the cornerstone forms of alienation which is the alienation from place and the alienation from one another and one's own body and word that is uh uh, endemic right and actually part of the design of colonial domination so i think in that way we have to see the political dimension or political significance of cesare's practice or evocation of a surrealist poetics in poetry and, and knowledge, we have to see the, the political significance of that precisely in that transformation of the relationship of one to one's body, one to one's language, and one through body and language to the world in which they live. Now, when we get to culture and colonization, which is a much more metaphysical and sort of big picture sort of world stage of culture and civilization talk i mean it's just it has a grandeur to it like whether you have a taste for that grandeur or not is another question but it has a grandeur to it right, that poetry and knowledge doesn't. Poetry and knowledge, I think, is so intimate and the body and exhortations and manifestos, whereas culture and colonization really backs up and asks this big question, which is a racial question. What does it mean to be a black person? What does it mean to be a black person beyond how the meaning of that blackness, this is important, how the meaning of that blackness is connected to what white people did to black people? Because part of Césaire's Notebook of a Return to the Native Land, especially the beginning of the poem, is to document what blackness means under what we might now call the white gaze, right? What it means to interpret and think about blackness in relation to white domination and an interracial space in that way. And when we think about blackness from that perspective, Right. It's always dependent upon or reactive to um, to the white gaze and to what white people have done to black people. And I think culture and colonization is that 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 work from Césaire where he tries to reverse that that storytelling and to say like everyone or almost everyone at the 1956 uh, Paris Congress, which was dedicated to really articulating this thread of diaspora that could pull. Uh, the diversity of black cultures and black nations uh, together, right, and, and unify them under, under something, right, that Césaire is trying to answer this question of what is a black person with a notion of civilization. And what he means by civilization is clear in the essay. Civilization is that unifying force across cultural differences, but not all cultural differences because it's not a world civilization. It is rather civilization as this umbrella that helps organize and make sense of cultures that are distinct, but have some kind of resonance or similarity or essential connection, right? That despite their differences, identifies them and unifies them. He uses the example, and I, I think it's important that he does, that when, someone, uh, when we talk about European civilization, when someone talks about European civilization, they are trying to account for how, despite the differences, say, between Italy and the Netherlands, right, of England or, or Greece, Right, which are massively different, right? Different languages, uh, in some ways, in the case of Greece, uh, different scripts altogether, uh, dip, very different histories, even though they're often entwined, but nevertheless have a, a similarity across all of those differences. How, how do we name that difference and how do we describe that difference? The naming of the difference is racialized, right? That European civilization is a racialized term it's what we would call and you know he calls and it comes to be called across you know the black atlantic world or across the atlantic world generally whiteness right that white identity is what gives what what you know what we call european civilization is related to this notion of white identity inextricably related because you cannot extract whiteness from europe right and europe's boundaries are exactly where that idea of whiteness falls off. I think that historically and even today as as people struggle with what is European identity inside Europe that is a racial difference that is deeply connected to religious difference. Right that I I I said in class and I say all the time that where the quote continent of Europe because it's not actually a geographical or physical continent on a map where the continent ends is where Christianity begins to dwindle, right? Where Islam, that boundary between Christianity and Islam, and there are lots of in-between spaces. You know, um, you know, as you get close to the border with Turkey, as you sort of curve around the Mediterranean world, and you pass through, say, uh, you know, what's now Bosnia, where you start to have significant Muslim populations. That's where you start to get in that interstitial between space of Europe and its other. So it's racial, but racial is tied to all kinds of things, right, around religious practices, uh, sometimes around languages, but certainly cultural values and priorities. As diverse as they are, you know, the European fantasy of having a civilizational identity is that there's a commonality, and what that commonality is is up for articulation and up for debate. So we don't have to give it strict contours to just assert it as existing. And Cesare asks, like, well, if that's the case with Europe and for white people and white and European cultures, why is that not also true for Africa and its diaspora? Right. For the continent of sub-Saharan Africa and the uh, black diaspora. So he just moves forward with that African civilization is this life urge or vital urge this spiritual force that adds a sense of unity across all the massive and significant differences in african culture and the cultures of the black diaspora whether it's united states and the caribbean or the caribbean and uh, black latin america um, or any ways that you would want to divide up cultural differences because you know the archipelago itself is so massively different and martinique is very different than jamaica which is very different from from uh, haiti which is very different than dominica and so forth right we can just proliferate these differences even in the archipelago certainly across the americas and absolutely across the atlantic world and throughout the continent of africa now how we give content to that notion Of African civilization is a next question and it's a difficult question and it's a question that requires taking a lot of risks. You know the audacity of the negritude movement is so interesting to me precisely because it tries to give an answer to that and we saw the answer to that already in poetry and knowledge and that's why I wanted to pair the essays that what culture and colonization calls African civilization is something like the precondition of the manifesto quality and the exhortations of poetry and knowledge to reconnect the senses as immersed in the world rather than at some distance or removed from the world. That sense of immersion in the world, right? That rejection of dualism and that engagement with the ambiguities of sensual experience, right? The way the body and the world and the word blend into one another. And that poetry is an attempt to articulate that in its most visceral, um, immediate and energetic way and form is a way of answering that question. What do we mean when we say African civilization? It's not an easy question to answer because, of course, everyone's going to ask, well, what about this? What about that? And generate counterfactuals or generate complicating, um, uh, uh, you know, counter uh, cases and counter arguments. That's part of debating, right? What is that civilization? Certainly Europe, in terms of debating what is European civilization, for anyone who's interested, you can go find for centuries debates around this. And in some ways, what Césaire is doing, along with a number of other people, but what Césaire is doing in in culture and colonization, and I think had built himself up for in poetry and knowledge, is to begin that conversation. begin that debate about what is the content or what are the characteristics or essential features of this notion of african civilization it may be that in the end that question is resolved with a very different answer than cesare himself gives but it is a question that for him has to be raised and one of the things i love about cesare raising it and then reading that alongside poetry and knowledge that you can say hey like you know, there is already some content to this that he's tried to give. What I like about the audacity of his claims is that it makes you—you—it makes uh, any any reader feel compelled to engage that question. But the question of civilization is not movable for Cicero; it's something that an intellectual tradition will debate and will modify and will argue over, and perhaps that argument and those debates will be. Um, you know drawn out and and uh brutal but they are arguments that have to happen because i think in the end what cesare is concerned about in cultural and colonization and this is true of so many of the participants in the 1956 paris congress one of the things that he's so concerned about is that europe gets this claim to civilization and the maintenance of cultural difference Whereas what he worries about is that in a post-colonial moment where nations are becoming independent and starting to think about how to how do we think about our identities without colonialism, uh, which had existed, you know, in, in, in across the Atlantic world for centuries. So, you know, it's a real question. Like, who are we without this thing? Um, he doesn't want black people to get left behind in that conversation. It's like we need to answer that in the grandest in most explosive terms possible, and that's this question of civilization. And in accounting for that civilization, he also wants to distinguish himself from the legacy which predates uh, the Second World War. So really, talking more about the early earlier part of the twentieth century, those movements in the Americas, that Mar- Marcus Garvey being you know among the most uh, famous uh, versions of that. He 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 is trying to make sure that we don't think about back to Africa, about repatriation either culturally or, or, you know, in terms of demographics. That repatriation is the answer to this question of African civilization. So he's not arguing that black people in the Americas are just other Africans at the level of cultural belonging. He's saying at the level of civilizational belonging, but that Caribbean culture has a right to its own diversity and its own uniqueness, whether it's broadly in the archipelago or distinct, not only on um, particular islands, but even particular regions of an island. You know, when we, when we talk about uh, Antonio Benitez Rojo, he'll have a lot to say about how, you know, the differences even in a place like Cuba, he's Cuban, uh, you know, the difference between, you know, Havana and Santiago are just massive. And so those differences, even on an island, right, a single island have to be accounted for. And Cesare's trying to make space for that because he loves black diversity, but he's not willing to take black diversity as the, the end point, because for him, black diversity is produced by the violence of the slave trade and of colonialism that it fragments and scatters. That's what a diaspora is. It's a scattering of seeds. It, 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 it divides and scatters uh, Africans across the Atlantic world. And to sit on only say, well, this is just the diversity of black culture and we'll leave it at that is for Cesare at some deep level. concede a victory to the colonizer that he's unwilling to concede what he wants is what the colonizer took which is this sense of unity among black peoples now you can say that's a myth it didn't exist okay fine that it's a myth right so is european identity but it's a myth that makes a difference in the world and makes a difference politically and culturally in terms of what measures the authenticity and realness of black cultural production but also alongside that authenticity of black cultural production it's also a resource like a vital living energy that can be accessed and when it is accessed can start this process of cultural revitalization and revitalization because the point of colonialism and plantation slavery was to take the vitality out of the life of the colonized and out of the lives of the enslaved. And when you reinsert that vitality, there's this question, where does that vitality come from? These two essays tell us there are two origins of that vitality. In that way, also two sort uh, resources for this anti-colonial effort of poetry. Right. And those two resources are the immediate surrealist contact of the body, word and senses with the world and that immersion, but also this notion of African civilization, which is an historical resource, but also an expanded idea beyond one's immediate landscape, an expanded and expansive idea of what black people in the diaspora can draw from for that revitalization of a sense of place, a sense of identity, and a sense of meaning. So when we read the two essays together, it is, for me, really about the, the, uh, the possibilities of poetry, possibilities of black cultural production to do anti-colonial work by giving a sense of vitality to lives who are made unvital, Right. Whose vitality is made precarious, if not outright destroyed by centuries of effort to do just that. And so when you want to decolonize and you want anti-colonial struggle in order to emerge, in order to emerge in a post-colonial state, nation, right, or status of the world, you want to do so with roots. Right, that moment when he's like, you know, it, we, we need to be like a tree. We need a root. What is that root? Right. It's culture. And that culture is infused with energy by the surrealist turn, but also the metaphysical turn toward the question of African civilization and its life force and what it does for the diversity of black cultural production.